Good morning. I'll try that again. Good morning. Sounded better. That sounded better. Uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn in First Timothy uh, chapter six. First Timothy chapter six. We're gonna, God willing, complete the book of First Timothy today. Um, you're probably thinking, why are we doing the whole chapter? Uh, in one, we'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, but let's go ahead and look at First Timothy chapter six, and let's look at uh, starting in verse six together. First Timothy chapter six, verse six. Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierce themselves with pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good con- good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Let me pray for us. Father, we come to You, our mighty fortress. And Lord, we come as Your people and, and we say thanks for bringing us back here again. And Lord, we come under the banner of of Christ, which means a banner of thanksgiving, that we who were once your enemies are now sitting at your table. And Lord, I pray that as we sit now at your table, that you will feed us, your people, by your word. And Lord, I do pray that by your word and through your spirit, Lord, you will help us to let goods and kindred go. And this mortal life also. Lord, I pray for that. I pray that You would do that incredible work in our hearts. Lord, do it this morning. Work it out in our lives. We pray that and ask for that, knowing that You and You alone can do this. Thank You, Father, for Your Word. And would You bless it now to Your people. Amen. Well, uh, we are in 1 Timothy again. We're in chapter... Six, which is the final chapter of First Timothy, and like I said, God willing, uh, we will complete the book today. Um, and so, uh, I feel like I need to give some reason as to why knock this out in one sermon. I got to tell you, I hadn't planned on that initially, but as I kept reading the book over and over, I mean, or the chapter, I kept reading over and over. It just occurred to me that I really think Paul is up to a single overarching point. And I'm not saying you couldn't preach a lot of really good sermons out of portions of 1 Timothy chapter 6. You certainly could. But I think uh, that we might miss something if we look at it 
and dissect it um, that we might gain by pulling it all together. And so I was compelled to, let's look at it as one. So we've got a lot of work to do together this morning. Um, We're going to chop it up a little bit differently. So I will ask that you please don't bail too early. Uh, that you hang with it, uh, and uh, and we'll trust the Lord's word together. Well, I read verses six through twelve up front because I think that gets us at the very heart of what Paul is up to in this chapter. I think those verses uh, are, uh, are the lens, the focus to view the rest of the chapter. So let's look again at verses uh, at verse seven. He says, "For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world." But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. I think the main point of these verses is there is nothing that is merely from this world. Say it again. There's nothing that is merely from this world that is of any benefit for us. There's nothing that is merely from this world that is of any benefit for us. A few, few years ago, Joel and I had the uh, amazing privilege of going and visiting India and then visiting uh, Shankar. And actually, for the first time, met Karthi there on that trip. And uh, when we got there, uh, we got to uh, spend time with his family. We also we have some uh, group of software developers over there, so we were able to spend some time with them. Joel and I enjoyed that, saw the Taj Mahal. Um, uh, which was uh, incredibly impressive, all those things. But one of the things that we did, if you go to foreign countries, one of the first things you do is we took our American dollars and we converted them into the currency of the native land, which in India is rupees. Um, and we didn't do this just one time. We did this a couple of times because it, it doesn't take much thinking through to realize if I exchange a whole lot of dollars into rupees, when I get back to America, the rupees aren't much good to me, right? So I don't want to go exchanging a lot uh, at once. I want to do a small amount at a time. My use for rupees lasted as long as my stay in India. My use for rupees lasted as long as my stay in India. As such, my main principle... While I was in India, when it came to rupees, was get as much as I need and not any more while I am here. I think this is the main thrust of what Paul is after in verse 7 and in this section when he tells us we cannot take anything out of the world. When we leave the world, we leave naked like we came into it. He is reminding us of what the uh, author of Ecclesiastes says in chapter 5. And he says, As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that that he may carry away in his hand. And we talked about the toil this morning in Christian Growth Group. You can't take anything more with you than you brought in. Now that's an amazing point. Just stop and think about that. I mean, as one person once said, you've never seen a hearse with a U-Haul behind it. There's no need, right? Paul continues to make this point in verse 8 by telling us that there are some bare essentials that we need. 
And it's helpful. He actually names some things. He tells us that we have bare essentials of food and clothing. And you think about when a baby comes into the world. What's one of the very first things we do? We get something wrapped around the baby. In other words, we give them some clothes. And I'm sure, as Courtney and Shelley can attest for us, it does not take long for the baby to also let us know they have another bare need called food. And they're quick to let us know, I would like to eat. Um, they're not usually that polite. Uh, it's a lot uh, louder, um, usually. Those are our basic needs. We have need for food and for clothes. Those are the bare essentials. Now that's not where I want to camp, but certainly this would be a whole message in itself. Just stop for a second and think through your monthly budget. And think through how many things fall out of the category of bare essentials. Yeah, we might argue that there are a couple other things besides food and clothing. But how much really falls out of bare essentials? Paul says our bare essentials are food and clothing. He wants us to learn to be content with the bare essentials. So he warns us against the danger of riches. In verse 9 there of chapter 6, Paul writes that riches lead to major temptations. He goes further in verse 10 to tell us that these temptations have caused lead people to all kinds of evil and even have caused some to make shipwreck of their faith, proving themselves to have never believed. What is Paul warning against? I think he's warning against the temptation to live as if this world is all there is. Let me say that again. Paul is warning us about the temptation to live today with the thought that this world is all there is. He said, you are really going to be tempted. That is, riches would only matter if this world were all that there were. But since this world is temporary, since it is not ultimate, we cannot treat this world that way. So the admonition is, do not live as if this world is ultimate. That's his admonition. And I want you to see him apply that admonition in a couple of places. So again, let me put it out there. Do not live as if this world is ultimate. That's what he's after. And I think you're going to see him apply it for a lot of different people across the chapter. Let's start in verse 1. Let all who are under a yoke as, a, as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. So there were some slaves who had come to believe in Jesus Christ. And, and one thing, first of all, off the cuff, realize when you think of slavery here, you cannot compare it to what we know as the American slave trade or the slave trade of, the, of Western Europe and North America um, throughout the 16th all the way up to the 19th century. 
That is a very different form of slavery. All that said, the slavery that Paul is talking about is still not something any of us would wish for. It's still not a great fate. So you got these men and women who've come to faith in Christ who now are, are saying, well, now that I'm free in Christ, certainly I should ask for my freedom here. And Paul says to them, no, don't do that. Notice the grounds by which he does that. The grounds on which he says that, I think, are it would make sense if this world were not were if it would make sense if this world were ultimate. And so, in other words, the grounds by which Paul gives them is if this world were all there were, if there were no God to whom could be reviled, if there were no believing Masters to whom could be served in the name of Christ could be heralded, then you should walk. You should ask for your freedom today. But since this world isn't ultimate, you should stay right where you are. What an amazing, unbelievable when you think about it, countercultural statement. You stay. Why? Because this world isn't ultimate. Look at another place. There at the end of verse 2, he says, Teach and urge these things. Verse 3, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and teaches that uh, accords uh, with godliness, so if anybody is teaching anything uh, other than the words of Christ and that which accords with godliness, then he is popped up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy, for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and depraved on the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So first Paul talks to the slaves, now he's going to talk to a group of preachers. He's going to tell this group of preachers, in particular those who are leaning towards false teaching and controversies and arrogance. Why? Because they want gain. And they want financial gain. That's the whole thrust of the chapter. And therefore, that would be the thrust of what the gain means there. So, so they're willing to bend the truth if they can get more hearers, and as they gain more hearers, they gain more financially. They're willing to stir up controversy to make themselves look good in order that they may gain financially. And so Paul is warning them, do, and warning Timothy, don't give in to that temptation. Don't look at the ministry as if it's all about you. Don't look at it as if it's a way to gain money or prestige. It's the same admonition. Don't treat this world as if it is all there is, like it's ultimate. If that were true, if this world were ultimate, then sure, go ahead, bend the truth. It doesn't matter. I mean, if this world is all there is, it doesn't matter. Bend the truth. Stir up as much controversy as you can to get the highlight on yourself. Do what you can to get a here and to gain a buck. Because this world is all there is. Paul says, but this world isn't all there is. And therefore, you must not give in to that temptation. Verse 13 
He's now talking here to Timothy. He's talking to the slaves. He's talking to the preachers. Verse 13, I charge you, he's talking to Timothy, in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who is in His testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. So he's given him a charge. He's given him a ground. And here's the charge. Keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach. So he says to Timothy, I charge you, Timothy, keep the commandment unstained and keep it free from reproach. Well, what's going on there? You won't be surprised that I think the main thrust of that is him arguing to Timothy, don't treat this world as if it's ultimate. Don't treat it like it's there, this is all there is. Why would I think that? Because of the grounds. Notice there in the middle. He says, I charge in the presence of God. Now he's going to describe who God is. He's the one who gives life to all things. And then he's going to also charge him in the presence of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pilate made the good confession. The grounds for which Paul tells Timothy this charge is the way that Jesus acted before Pilate. Well, how did Jesus act before Pilate? You remember that? In John 18, Pilate says to Jesus, Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Remember Jesus' answer? My kingdom is not... Of what? This world. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. Remember, his servants are only not fighting because he told them, put back the sword, buddy. Right? That I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. What is the point? That Paul is telling Timothy, he is telling Timothy, don't live as if this world is all there is, Timothy. But I'm telling you, because it's not, keep the commandment pure. Follow it. Don't get distracted. Don't veer. Follow Christ's example. And then let's drop down to verse 17. Is he now going to talk to... He's talked to the slave. He's talked to the preacher. He's now talked to Timothy directly. And now he's going to talk to the rich. Verse 17. As for the rich, in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So he's turning his attention to some rich folks in the congregation. He's saying, now you go tell the rich people, don't be arrogant. Don't be haughty. And it's interesting too, he, he defines them as rich what? He doesn't just call them rich. There's, there's a further explanation of that. Those who are rich in this present age. In other words, it would be foolish to mention a present age unless you were confidently aware of a future age. In other words, those who are rich in the present age may not be rich in the future age. In fact, if what Jesus tells us about those who are rich and the likelihood of them making it to the future age, it actually is quite certain that those who are rich in the future age stand very little chance of making it. Sorry, those who are rich in the present age stand very little chance of making it to the future age. Why? 
Because this world is not ultimate. That's why you shouldn't be haughty. That's why you should see your riches as uncertain. They can be gone like that. Folks, there is a strong application for your soul and my soul today. A very strong application. We must manage our lives, in particular our money, as if this world is not ultimate. As if this world is only temporary. It reminds you what James says about the duration of our lives. Do you remember that in James 4 when he says, Our lives are how long? They're like a what? A vapor or a mist. They come and they go. That's how short our lives are. They are so short that they come and go like a mist. And so remember when I was talking about being in India, I was there for a short stay. And so I didn't exchange everything I had. Why? Because I'm not going to be there but so long. Well, if we take the same application to how we look at this age, and if the Bible has told us that this age is not ultimate, and the Bible has told us this age is in fact incredibly brief, then why in the world would we bank it all on this age? Recognize that Paul's statement is as much a statement against lavish savings as it is extravagant spending. If your life is short and you can't take anything with you, then lavish savings is just as silly as extravagant spending. Now I'll say this because I know many of you are probably like me, somewhat fiscally conservative. And so chances are you're going to teeter a lot closer towards lavish savings than extravagant spending. I don't know why I chose the right for one and left for the other, but we'll move on. And and while the Bible extols the wisdom of savings, and certainly it does, it never, ever encourages lavish savings. Ever. In fact, Jesus rails against the idea of lavish savings. Do you remember in Luke chapter 12? Do you remember when Jesus is talking to the guy? Remember there's a guy who's, who's rich and he's so rich that he has his barns filled up so he goes and he builds bigger barns. His, his savings account is, is so filled up that he has to get another 401k and another IRA. And he's got to continue other financial instruments to save more. What does Jesus say to him? What does He call him? You wise individual. Oh, you steward so well. We ought to give you a radio show and books so you can teach us all how to live like you do with your rainy day and flood funds. He says, you fool. This night, your soul is required of you. In the things you have prepared, whose will they be? I find this helpful. Sometimes folks defend lavish savings by saying, well, the good news is if I don't use it, I can leave it to my children. That's not all terrible. (laughs) But you have to know that the most consistently wasted, frivolously spent money is inherited money. The truth be told, your kids will probably waste it. It's typically spent in a way that honestly is a crying shame. I mean, quite frankly, people do the dumbest things with inherited money. You've seen it. Why? It's a principle the Bible teaches. We don't steward well that which we don't work for. I'm not 
I've just lost all of my inheritance. It's gone. Um, but it, 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 it doesn't make sense. So, well, then how? I love what John Wesley taught. In the 18th century, he sums up, he's living in the 18th century, his Anglican sums up the New Testament ethic this way. Gain all you can and save all you can so that you can give all you can. Gain all that you can and save all that you can so that you can give all that you can. So what about the American church and giving? It is estimated that 80% of all the world's Christian wealth resides in North America. Now just swallow that. 80% of all the world's Christian wealth is in North America. Somewhere around $6 trillion every year is brought in by North American Christians. This should be and could be a sufficient pool for resources for the kingdom of God. Unfortunately, the number of faithful givers is frighteningly low. The numbers show that somewhere between 95 and 96 of Americans do not tithe. And when you filter the number of those who regularly attend church, you would think it's going to get a lot better. 88% of those who regularly attend church do not tithe. The average church member gives somewhere, depends on which years in the last decades you've looked at, but somewhere between 2 to 2.5% of their income to the kingdom of God. We might make ourselves feel a little bit better when we say, but yeah, but Tim, you know, we're in the midst of a financial decline. Yeah, but if you go a decade back, it doesn't get much better at all. I tell you, I felt really bad when I looked at the numbers for giving in the Great Depression. American Christians during the Great Depression outgive us today by anywhere from 30 to 60% during the Great Depression. We could be very easily unmoved by these numbers until we realize what would happen if American Christians said, you know what, I'm going to set a mark of 10%. I'm going to give that. (laughs) This is unbelievable. It will floor you. Listen to what could be done. This is only taking the income for average members of historically Christian churches in America. So that's not going to include Mormons. Average for for average, uh, I'm sorry. Given the average income for church members in historically Christian churches in America, they bring in around fifty-five billion dollars a year. If each of them gave a tithe, this would give us a increase of 200 I'm sorry I said 55 billion I meant 550 billion annually if each of them gave a tithe this would give us an increase to 228 billion dollars annually to give you an idea of what that increase could do one it would be enough to address the basic health food and medicine and education needs to, to the world's poor. Just the increase. 
You can take care of all of the hunger and medical needs just from American Christians tithing. And it'd be enough money to end preventable child deaths. And enough to provide education for all the children on the globe. And more than enough, missiologists tell us, to fund missionaries in every part of the globe and still leave $70 billion to be used for the church in America, which would more than double the amount currently available. American Christians alone, if they gave, could end world hunger, could spread the gospel, at least get the gospel out to the entire globe, educate all the children in preventable diseases for children under five if they gave a tithe. And so I return to Wesley who tells us that we should earn all that we can. And by the way, there is nothing wrong with earning money. Christians have never been against earning money. It is a good, godly thing to earn money. And I agree with Wesley. Earn all that you can. Obviously in a godly way. But then he tells us to save all they can. But we know he can't mean lavish savings because his very next principle is to do all this in order that we might give away all that we can. So by saving, he means spending as little as you can. So he says, earn as much as you can and spend as little as you can so that you can give away all that you can. You say, well, what does this look like? I submit to you the life of Wesley as an example. Wesley lived the principle out. In the first year of his uh, earnings, he made very, very, very little. He was only able to give away 1% of what he uh, earned. His second year, his income doubled. He held his earning or his spending exactly the same. In the second year, he increased it from giving away 1% to 53%. For his entire life, he held his spendings to the same amount that he spent the first year when he earned almost nothing. By the end of his life, he was giving away annually 97% of everything he took in. He's talking about not having lavish savings. He so freaked out the English version of the IRS that they did an audit on him because they couldn't believe that somebody would be doing this. They found that he owned the following. He had four spoons to his name. He had four spoons and a plate. When Wesley died, the only thing he had was the coins in his pocket and a few coins left in his dresser drawer. But he felt he needed, because he had one other thing, he had some books, and he felt he needed to give an apology for leaving so much behind. He gave this, I can't help leaving my books behind whenever God calls me home. But in every other respect, my own hands will be my executors. Naked I came, and naked I'll leave. I like a contemporary example by a guy named David Green. You probably know him as the famous CEO now of Hobby Lobby, becoming more famous or to some infamous by the day. David Green is now ranked as Forbes' list as the 79th richest American. 
He began his company 43 years ago in, the, in, his, uh, in his living room of his home. He's now built it to be a multi-billion dollar enterprise. He is one of the humblest guys if you ever hear an interview with him. He won't take... They, reporters try to make this guy take credit for it. He won't take credit for anything. He says all the time, this is not me at all. This is purely what God has done. This is a guy who gives away extravagant amounts for the kingdom of God, both personally and as a company. This is a guy who could afford a Gulf Stream and flies coach. As a company, he has set within their policies that at the end of every year, they take their pre-tax profit, so pre-tax earnings, and they immediately ship, I'm not messing with the numbers here, half of all that money goes out of the company and goes straight to the kingdom's work. It's unbelievable. They don't, he will not release to anybody all that he has given uh, personally because of, uh, he's afraid that it would become too much. But of course reporters have tried to dig and they have estimated well over $500 million he gives away regularly. He is written into the company's bylaws that should the company ever be sold or divested, 90%, 90% of all the profit from the sale must immediately go to kingdom purposes. Only 10% can stay for his family. It's reverse item. He said if this company ever sells or is divested of its earnings, 90% of everything has to go to kingdom purposes. Only 10% can go to my family. And here's his reason. It's out of care for his children. He says, I do not want my grandkids, quote, to say, I own 5%, I own 10%, and then all of a sudden find themselves living on a yacht. Why? Because he thinks it could cost them their souls. This is a man who understands kingdom priorities and the dangers of riches. That is what Paul says when he says, naked you came and naked you leave. This world is not all there is. So Paul makes the point that we cannot manage our resources as if the world is all there is, but I think this is only half the story. Lucky for you, I will do it in a little bit less than half the time. I think the second half is actually more glorious than the first half. The first half is about a negative imperative. He's charging us to not do something. Namely, he's charging us, don't treat this world as if it, there, as if it is all there is. The second half is a positive imperative, imploring us to do something else. Look at verses 11 and 12. Verses 11 and 12, Paul writes, But as for you, O man, as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, fight the good fight of the faith, take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In contrast to those who are ruined by riches, Paul charges the Ephesians to flee those things. But he tells them to run to the fruits of the Spirit. Namely, run to God. He calls them to take up eternal life. He is telling them that the way to let go of this world is by valuing the future world a thousand times more glorious. 
I submit this is the story of the Scriptures. Hear me. The Bible never ever calls us to give up a pleasure without first embracing a greater pleasure. The Scriptures will never ask you to give up a pleasure without giving you a greater pleasure in its place. And we don't have time now, but I think the reason is because you cannot do that. The only way you can ever give up a pleasure is by seeing something else is more pleasurable. The only way that I ever uh, am able to turn down a dessert is if I look at the fact that I don't need the dessert is better for me than my desire for the dessert, right? I don't turn down many, but still. Um, let me let you see this. I want you to see Paul doing this. He actually actually does this across the chapter. Verse 1. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that, that's the grounding, the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. How is a slave to not spend his days longing for his freedom? By submitting in order that his greater love, the name of God, might be honored. How do you not live in bitterness to your master? You love the Lord your God as your master greater. Verse 2, those who have, been, have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Don't let that, that be it. Rather, they must serve all the better. All the better. You see, it's a comparison talk Paul's up to. Since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. He serves his master as believing, hoping that it benefits the believing brother and ergo benefits the coming kingdom. And notice in verse 6, Right after Paul warns about the preachers, he gives us this incredible word. Godliness with contentment is great what? Gain. It's gain. Paul is saying to Timothy, if you are content in God and in Him alone, that's all you need. This is how you guard from covetousness. You don't guard from covetousness by telling yourself, don't love stuff, don't love stuff, don't love stuff. You guard from covetousness by finding contentment in God and in God alone. When you love and treasure Christ above all things, you do not give a rip about riches and praise. They're useless to you. Oh, what freedom we have with contentment in God. Look at verse 13. I charge you, verse 14, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. 15, which He will display at the proper time. He who is blessed and the only sovereign. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He alone has immortality who dwells in approachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see to Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Timothy is to keep the commandment unstained by setting his gaze on the day when Christ will appear. In order to convince Timothy, Paul goes on to describe with amazing language the day that's coming, the eternal life that's coming. And he says, just picture it, Timothy. And you'll keep the commandment unstained. And remember those rich folks that he told them, don't you be haughty, don't you uh, set your mind on the uncertainty of riches. He is so kind not to leave them there. He gives them a way not to do that. Look, Listen to verse 18. They are to do good. And this is the rich folks. To be rich in good works. 
to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures <laughs> for themselves as good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. He begins it by saying they're rich in the present age. And he says, do you want to know how you give up the riches in the present age? You, you completely transfer them, cash them in for treasures in the age that is to come. You can't take any of those riches with you, but by the mercy of Christ, you can take an abundance of spiritual fruit, and that just so happens to be the currency of the coming kingdom. And then he goes to Timothy. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit. See that word? Deposit. When we think of deposit, how do we typically use that word? We typically use that word talking about finances, treasure, stuff, riches. It's not an accident that he uses that word. You go guard that deposit. Go guard the deposit and trust you. Avoid the reverend babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Tells Timothy, avoid senseless junk and, and, and go guard the deposit, son. I think this is one of the key admonitions of the chapter. Guard the deposit. Timothy, on the cross of Christ, you have been given everything you could ever need or want. You have been given an incredible deposit. Now folks, imagine the richest person that, you, that we know in the world. Imagine, everybody knows he's the richest person. And then we find out that he actually stores all of his money and is buried in his backyard. He has nobody guarded. He goes and people find him all the time begging for food and he's in some thrift stores. He's trying to, he's trying to cut deals everywhere he can. We would either imagine that that man is crazy, or woman, is crazy, or, or they're not nearly as valuable as everybody thinks. Brothers and sisters, when we treat this world like it has for us stuff that we can't find in Christ, we make our Lord look invaluable. We make Him look like He doesn't matter. When we're enamored with this world as if it's all there is, we make our Lord in the cross of Christ look as if it's nothing. But I'll tell you what will confuse the world. When they start to look at us and say, they act like they've got something because they don't care about what we've got. That'll confuse them. Paul says to the slave, if you demand your freedom, then you make Christ look invaluable. You make Him look like He's a ticket to something in this life. But if you go serve your Master, all the while knowing that you're not owned by any man but by Christ, you make Jesus look incredibly valuable. Preacher, if you start changing everything you teach, stirring up controversies just to get some people to join your side and join your ministry, you make Christ look like He's invaluable. But instead, if you follow truth regardless of the cost, if you go without, do it. Especially if it means it makes Jesus look valuable. And rich man, everybody expects you to look and be content. They expect you 
to love the things of this world. But I tell you, if you don't live arrogantly, but you live humbly, if you give lavishly to others, they will wonder what in the world does this guy know? Let us lay hold of Christ and realize that in Him we have been given all thanks. He is our hope and He alone is our treasure. Reminded of the story of John Chrysostom. Chrysostom served the 4th century church under the beginnings of what was beginning to look like a quote, and I use that, Christian Rome. Chrysostom got in a lot of trouble with the empress. At that point, the emperors were, quote, Christian. Um, and the empress got really upset with Chrysostom, Chrysostom. And here's why. Chrysostom would not let her give him a lot of lavish stuff and would not let, him, let her give him, throw big parties for him where all the rich folks could come. He stood against it and said, that's not what the kingdom of God is about. He denied riches. All he's got to do is accept some riches and he's okay with her. And she's threatening his life. And he's standing before her and listen to the dialogue. Eudoxia, that's the empress, says, I'll banish you. John replies, Empress, you cannot banish me. For this world is my father's house. Well, I'll kill you, says the empress. No, you can't do that either. My life is hid with Christ in God. Well, I'll take away your treasures. Sorry, you can't do that either. My treasure is in heaven and my heart is locked there also. I'll drive you away from your friends and you'll have no one left. Mm-mm, you can't do that. See, I have a friend in heaven whom you can never separate me from. He was so free. He could stand before the emperor, the empress and say, You can't touch me. You know, we look at Romans 8 all the time and we love where it tells us that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. It's in Christ Jesus. And we look at that and we get a warm fuzzy. And we should. But folks, it's so much more than a warm fuzzy. It is freedom. There's nothing this world can take. There's no phone call I can get. There's no phone call you can get. There's no diagnosis you can get. There is no natural disaster that can hit that can rock our worlds and take Christ away. He's our treasure. And Paul is saying, let goods and kindred go. And this mortal life also, the body they can kill, but His truth abides. Still. And then with Psalm 46.10. We said it together. And I, I loved how Eddie read it. Um, he read it like this, and I think that's great. He said, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. God declares that He will get glory no matter what. You say, well, I mean, that's good, but how's that great for me, just to be quite honest? I mean, I'm glad He's getting glory. That's good. God should get glory, but how's that good for me? I want to be quite honest, it might not be good for you. I'm going to be quite frank. It could be horrific for you. 
It all depends on how you estimate the cross of Christ. If you look at the cross of Christ and think it's just another story about a really good guy or a story about a really good guy who died a death he didn't deserve or a good story for the, you know, the halls of church or for children's books, but that's all you estimate it for. And friends, you're still in your sin. And when the glory of God triumphs, He will triumph over your sin and He will judge you and it will be horrific. That's horrible news. But there's goodness. If you estimate the cross of Christ was where the Son of God came into human flesh and on that cross He bore the wrath of God for your sins and my sins So much so that you are no longer in your sin and that God sees Christ and Christ alone He looks at you. And there is really good news. Because your good and God's glory are inextricably inseparable for the ages. That is the Gospel. Let us live like we believe this. The Gospel has changed everything. Nothing is the same. It is the incredible news that the very God who stood starkly against us while we were in our sins, now because of the cross, is always and only for us. To God be the glory. Amen.